Stay tuned next for Resistance Roundtable. Resistance Roundtable, broadcast on WPKN the second Saturday of each month, where we engage in conversation about local and nationwide organizing for a more just and democratic America during this pivotal and dangerous moment in our nation's history. Hosting today's show is Ruth Ann Baumgartner, who is a longtime instructor in literature and writing at Central Connecticut State University. She's member of the Executive Committee of the Connecticut Conference of the American Association of University Professors. Ruth also serves as a member of the Board of Directors and a Theatrical Director with the Westport Community Theater. Ruth Ann is here with us in the studio again today. Hi, Ruth. Hello. Good to see you and be with you here in our new studios. Joining us by phone today from his uh, melting igloo in the Arctic Circle is Richard Hill, host of WPKN's show's first Tuesday Rainy Day Radio and Organic Farm Stand. Uh, on a rotating host of Mike Check as well. Richard is a musician, teacher, and mentor with Youth Radio Connecticut. Good to uh, have you on the show again this evening from the Igloo, Richard. Thank you so much. Uh, can you hear me? I can. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, I'm uh, actually, <clears throat> right now I'm dealing with a, a salesperson from Exxon who's trying to sell me some uh, big blocks of ice. So uh, it should be okay once I get those installed. Okay. Make sure you got the freezer working there. I'm Scott Harris, host of WPGAN's weekly public affairs program, Counterpoint, that airs Mondays, and executive producer of the syndicated Between the Lines radio news magazine, which both Ruth Ann and Richard are contributors. In a few minutes, we'll be joined by Michael Zweig, professor emeritus and former director of the Center for the Study of Working Class Life at the State University of New York at Stony Brook, We'll be talking about the historic victory of workers winning a union election at an Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, New York, and the state of the U.S. labor movement. But uh, before we get to the interview with Michael, I wanted to check in with you first, Ruth Ann, about um, the, some of the things that have um, been bothering you this week, <laughs> making you crazy, as uh, as I think we've all got our list. But what what's yours this well, week? Or making me crazier. <clears throat> this is, oh, excuse me, I think I need to put a little more distance here. <clears throat> My rant today is called Unholy Terror, or The Week in Review. As a kid, I thought of American adults as so many Wyatt Earps, brave, courageous, and bold. But now, having lived life I like to think has been suitably courageous, I see instead too many Americans who are very easy to manipulate into all sorts of ridiculous or loathsome behavior by deploying a bit of unholy terror, most easily by referring to the grooming of children as sex toys or gender-switching victims or perhaps future gay people, the nefarious work of Democrats or grade school teachers or even Joe Biden himself. And then the gender switchers, zombie-like, lurk in bathrooms to prey on their purer playfellows. Indeed, parents who talk with children about gender identification are functioning as recruiters for Satan himself in destroying the family unit, discouraging little girls from playing with dolls in toy kitchens and little boys from playing with toy guns or soldiers, girls properly clad in pink and boys in blue, obviously not indoctrination 
but carefully parental guidance. Aided by librarians, those same teachers, maybe during short breaks from sexual perversions, are busy making white children feel guilty for being white instead of reminding children of color to feel inadequate. When the teachers have time for all this brainwashing, I don't know, because they do have to spend a lot of time teaching arithmetic and spelling, mastering new computer programs, and submitting to parental inquisitions whenever a politician or fellow parent or Q thinks up a new transgression to accuse them of. Presumably, these parents were themselves the beneficiaries of good educations, but common sense and healthy intelligence seem to wither when the wind of bigotry and gullibility blows through the room. At least this seems to be the great discovery of the far right and the mysterious omniscient Q. To me, it seems incredible. Is a sizable portion of the American adult population ready to be turned into mindless pitchfork-wielding mob by irrational fear? And I say irrational because these bugaboos are beyond reason. Does your next-door neighbor suddenly turn into a monster because she votes for a moderate Democrat? Is your cousin a threat to all that's holy because he teaches in a public school and doesn't ostracize any of the kids? Is a judge unfit to serve on the federal bench because she prioritizes the Bill of Rights over a talk show host? Anyone who has been to public school must have read Shirley Jackson's The Lottery where every year neighbors help neighbors stone another neighbor to death to help the corn grow. How did this kind of magical thinking suddenly begin to look like logic? When did we decide to substitute a self-appointed anonymous internet sage or a spoiled public egoist or a powerful person's spouse or a random person with a gun for the principles we as citizens in and beneficiaries of a pluralistic democracy have been slowly working toward a more perfect union, or for the evidence of our own lived experience. We have a convoy of crusader tr- crusading truckers now heading for California to see if they can bring traffic to a halt there in order to prevent protective measures against a plague. Somewhere in Russia, there is at least one soldier who decided it was virtuous, patriotic, or satisfyingly vindictive or magic to take the time to paint on a missile aimed at a refugee train for the children. In the Kremlin, there is an autocrat who, during the Obama administration, was described by half the U.S. Senate as a real leader. Today, the good citizens of Russia are reportedly showing their virtue by reporting neighbors or parents who express sympathy for Ukraine. Abraham Lincoln said it about slavery. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or the other. We seem to be faced today with another kind of slavery, ceding the power over our minds and behavior to unqualified and, yes, un-American forces who invoke false gods and a fantasy past to stimulate our evidently innate fear of the great Satan, the other. I'm afraid Lincoln's words are valid. Only if we take them as a serious warning can we avoid being overtaken by the cultivated unholy terror by which the real enemies of a pluralistic democratic state can be turned into throwers of stones. Wow, that's that's something. Fired up. Yeah, and uh, you, you said what I've been thinking all week <laughs> for weeks now. Richard is on the line. Richard, uh, we only have a, a minute or so before we got to contact our guest, Michael Zweig. Would you like to say something now or hold hold off until we um, conclude our interview on the... I could wait okay. uh, if, you, if you have him already uh, on the line. Why, why don't you but warm I, us up? Uh, warm us up with your topic or right, topics. Give me a and, yeah. So uh, I've been uh, thinking about sanctions and the way the United States has used them over the decades. And my, my headline... We've watched America distribute or dispense sanctions in such a free manner, like tossing candy at a Halloween party. I basically see it as our way of asserting hegemony without bullets. It's a way of, you know, for the United States to control the global picture without firing any bullets. But the, the result is the same. It's, it's an attempt to control and to assert hegemony. So that, I'll talk more about it later. I'm thinking about, I, I just am having a vivid picture of um, somebody tossing. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to put a face on the tosser, uh, but I, I imagine it's many faces over time, isn't it? Yeah, we currently have sanctions on, uh, I don't know, about six countries, uh, Iran, Afghanistan, Cuba, Venezuela, and a couple of others. The thing about sanctions, you know, we think of them as sort of a safe or non-military way of punishing a country or controlling their behavior or asserting our control over them. But we forget that who are the victims of those sanctions? It's really not the governments, it's the people. There's tremendous devastation to their economy and to their way of life that these sanctions cause. So it's something to remember later. Scott, are you ready with uh, Michael? No. He's not ready. Okay. No. Anyway, I'll start my spiel, and then we can take it up later if I have to stop. So, uh, I don't know, as the U.S. and Europe have ratcheted up sanctions on Russia to mind-boggling levels, I have been wondering who is really paying the price in Russia, and at what point will Putin reach a breaking point and take military action against the West, just as Japan did in 1941, when U.S. sanctions had them backed into a corner, something I didn't know until I read an interesting uh, piece in on the Ezra Klein podcast. We think of sanctions as a civilized way of achieving geopolitical goals without direct military conflict, but history tells a different story. Right now, the U.S. has severe sanctions against Iran, Syria, Venezuela, Cuba, North Korea and Afghanistan, and that's just the current list. We've had many other sanctions in the past. In every case, these sanctions have caused extreme misery and deprivation among the ordinary citizens of those countries. In no case have these sanctions achieved their purported goals, for example, more democratization, increased equity, civil rights for dissidents, etc. It is also worth noting that Every one of these aforementioned nations have endured invasion, military assault, coups d'etat, and a variety of other hostilities perpetrated by the United States. Strange coincidence. Roger Karma, in a recent uh, interview with Nicholas Mulder on the Ezra Klein podcast, stated, it's really hard to overstate the severity of the sanctions imposed on Russia right now. We know from experience what sanctions like this do to the countries. Living standards collapse. Inflation surges to levels that are hard for us in the West to even comprehend. People end up bartering for basic necessities like medicines and fuel. And one Russian political scientist recently described the impact of the sanctions that are on Russia now as 30 years of economic development thrown into the dustbin. Karma goes on to say, I want to really be clear here. This is economic war. And in particular, this is economic war aimed directly at civilians, directly at those who had the least to say in the decision to evade Ukraine in the first place. Speaking for myself again, the U.S. and the West need to let go of their triumphalism and gloating about how completely they've handcuffed Putin with their sanctions. This is not a game of chess in which we've made a stunning move. There are real people being hurt by these sanctions and potentially catastrophic consequences waiting in the wings. What the United States should be doing and should have done from the day one is to demand and expedite immediate negotiations to achieve first a ceasefire and finally an end to these horrific hostilities. And I'll stop there and see if Scott is ready. Yes, we finally, after a lot of uh, trouble with the phone line, we did uh, finally get Michael Zweig, our guest today, on the line. So let me introduce uh, Michael. Michael's Professor Emeritus and former Director of the Center for the Study of Working Class Life at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. He's the author and editor of many books, including What's Class Got to Do With It? American Society in the 21st Century, as well as The Working Class Majority, America's Best Kept Secret. Welcome to Resistance Roundtable, Michael. Glad to have you here and appreciate you making time to join us. I know you're on the road today, so appreciate that. Thank you. Yep, I'm up at a union convention in Albany, uh, my union, uh, and I'm glad to be able to take the time to be with you. 
So Ruthie and Baumgartner and uh, is here in our studio, Richard Hills on the phone line. I, I'll just kick things off by asking you to explain to our listeners why the Amazon workers' victory voting in a union among the 8,000 employees at Amazon's JFK 8 Staten Island warehouse is such an important achievement in today's labor struggle and hopefully to reverse the decades-long loss of membership in labor unions across the U.S. What's important about this that our listeners should know, Michael? Well, the first and most important thing is that these workers actually won. You know, that's, we'll start with that. It, it is a, a new day seems to be dawning in the labor movement among workers uh, around the country where there is a new energy and a new understanding among workers that unions are important and not only are important, but are important enough to go out and vote for them and to do the necessary work and the real uh, organizing effort uh, to make it happen. So the fact that these Amazon workers were able to do that in a company that has been so uh, hostile to unions is really a remarkable achievement, and it's worth saluting. I think another very important lesson in this particular case and in other cases which are coming up, which we'll talk about, the workers themselves did this. It wasn't some outside organizer team that a union parachuted into a shop or to a, a city where there was some possibility for a union or a need for a union, and then the organizers came in as professional staff to uh, do the work of organizing, mobilizing, handing out flyers, making meetings. These were the workers themselves directly out of the plant. They, uh, I mean, uh, Christian Smalls was fired but he was still a worker from the plant. He was interior to that. He wasn't some uh, outside agitator. And so the fact that the workers were able to put together that committee and hold it together and find the ways to extend their reach within the plant, it was uh, a lesson and a, uh, and, and a beacon of light in this uh, new moment of labor uh, mobilization. Rich, Richard, do you have a question for Mike? Yeah, I, I was going to ask Michael to, to sort of put this present moment in perspective of the trajectory of the labor movement from, let's say, the 1930s when uh, organizing reached a fever pitch and uh, there was an administration that was willing to make changes and create the National Labor Relations Board. From that point until the present, there have been many uh, different developments and, and setbacks for, for labor. Can you briefly sort of give us that history and uh, place this current resurgence of labor action and victory in, in perspective? Well, you know, that's a very, very rich and long history that has a lot of twists and turns and a lot of complications. But if we start with the National Labor Relations Act, which was passed in 1935, uh, in the Roosevelt administration, uh, FDR, you had a law that uh, gave legal protection to unions. Unions were legal, except that they didn't have any protection. So if a worker tried to organize, could get fired. Uh, there were uh, no re no requirement that the company bargain with the union. It was just a, a brawl, and there was no uh, protections for workers in collective bargaining. So the National Labor Relations Act gave those protections, but then when Roosevelt won in 1936 and really had a mandate and really had uh, an enormous popular upsurge for uh, the New Deal, there was a real sense that the country was ready for workers to really organize. Now, workers had tried to organize, and there'd been a lot of mobilization in the 19, early 1930s, even though there was a depression. Uh, there were mass strikes and, and uh, 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 general strikes in San Francisco and the Bay Area around uh, dock workers and then in Minneapolis, uh, tr truckers and uh, warehouse workers and the Teamsters. So, and then all up and down the East Coast in the textile workers' uh, strikes in the 19, uh, 1934. So there was a, 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 an environment of, of real 
worker mobilization, which had a political context in the New Deal uh, with the National Labor Relations Act, but then also with the victory of Roosevelt in 36, that gave this upsurge a real uh, kind of context in which uh, it was okay to organize unions. It was necessary to organize unions. Uncle Sam wanted you to organize unions. And so uh, there was this tremendous upsurge in the late 30s and in, in the 40s. And then business and the corporate powers in the country reacted and uh, started to undercut through legislation, through court rulings, through administrative uh, proceedings, uh, started to uh, limit the power of unions and limit the power of workers to organize unions and limit the protections that workers would have for taking steps like organizing secondary boycotts or organizing mass pickets at a gate so that you could block scab labor from going in. Those things became unprotected. They became illegal. So the the opportunities for workers to organize were limited. But then the whole climate in the country, particularly in the 1980s, uh, began to shift away from unions as a legitimate presence in the society. Uh, in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, the labor leadership, a union leader, was a national figure. Walter Ruther was a national figure. George Meany was a national figure. We could agree with them, disagree with them, but they were a presence, and labor was a force to be reckoned with. And but then the tables turned, and by 1980 and 81 with Reagan uh, and the destruction of the air traffic controllers union uh, that Ronald Reagan uh, engineered in 1981, uh, it became, uh, you know, unions were marginalized. Labor was marginalized. You didn't hear about unions anymore. You didn't hear from union leaders anymore. They weren't national figures. They weren't interviewed. They weren't in the, uh, on the TV screens. And unions just disappeared. And uh, it, in that context, unions really did disappear. Well, the, in, by 1980, it was still the case that 25% of American workforce was in unions. Uh, that's down from a high in, in the mid-50s of uh, a third, but still a quarter of workers in the country were in unions when Reagan came into power. And now it's 6%. So it's just a collapse. And that collapse has been a reflection of the change in the legal environment, the change in the cultural environment, and uh, the change in the relative power of working people and capital in this country. So, you know, the the COVID situation, I think, uh, you know, what's an essential worker? And, and workers were essential. The idea that workers were people who we needed to pay attention to changed a little bit in the culture and the fight for 15 changed a little bit in the culture what was the position of working people inequality became a more pre uh, present question uh, one of the great contributions of the Occupy movement in, in 2011 was this idea of the 1% and the 99% it just called attention to the uh, uh, great inequalities and to the difficulties of life of working people. So what happened was uh, in, in the most, this most recent upsurge is that working people have come into their own in ways that have, we haven't seen in 40 years, 50 years, and it's just a very exhilarating moment. Uh, not only because of what happened at the Amazon uh, in Staten Island, but uh, in uh, MIT, the graduate students at MIT, 3,900 graduate students voted, 3,300 of them voted, it was like 80% voting, to join a union. And they joined the United Electrical Workers Union uh, in uh, a mass vote that was a tremendous victory and, again, organized by the staff themselves, by the graduate students, with the help of the union, but it was an, inter an, an internal organizing campaign. And that, I think, again, is a lesson that we have from the 30s, 
where union organizing was done by the workers themselves. And uh, the, the union may have provided some support here and there, but the real day-to-day work of signing people up and getting people to wear buttons and getting people to vote for the union and getting people to understand the need for it as a collective entity of a workforce, that was done by the workers themselves. And we're seeing that again here. And I think that that, that again, is what's giving a lot of uh, encouragement uh, in this moment. Michael, uh Ruth Ann Baumgartner, our, our resident labor activist, has a, a question and a comment for you. Sure. I'm, I'm thinking uh, about uh, on a, a several simultaneous tracks, Michael. One is that uh, uh, my career was destroyed by um, labor law uh, many years ago when I switched from being a tenured faculty member to joining an early member of the gig economy. Uh, the proliferation uh, and explosion, really, of part-time faculty, adjunct faculty, mm-hmm. helping the the uh, school, but not part of the school, obviously. Um, and we're uh, AAUP is finally getting some some um, grasp again on uh, organizing because they have turned uh, more and more to the needs of part-time faculty. Uh, and it seems to me that that, that, that is a, a really important factor, too, the whole impact of the gig economy, not only the, the uh, realization that workers can't live uh, in most fields on a gig economy, but also the realization that nor can the public. I've heard more complaints about people who have been who switched over to using Uber, for example, and now they say these Uber drivers you can't count on anything with them. Uh, so, it, it, there. It, do you think that there's more sympathy among the public than there has been? I, the, the problem that the faculty unions had, of course, was the yeshiva ruling that uh, faculty members were managers and therefore couldn't organize, um, and that ruling just collapsed the the full-time union effort in in, uh, higher education for some time. So uh, do you see more support from the general public for union activism? You mentioned the uh, 1%, which is, I think, was a terrific thing. Um, But do you think that that's a tide or or, uh, uh, waves? Well, I do think that the public appreciation for unions is growing. I think there's a lot of evidence in that in polling data and just in the organizing campaigns that workers who are doing these organizing, when they have a picket line up or where they're doing things, they get public support. And if you ask workers themselves, uh, do you want to be in a union? Do you support unions? Uh, Something like 60 or 70 percent say they do. Uh, well, how many are in unions? Well, it's about 10% of the total labor force, 6% of the private sector labor force. Well, if 6% of the private sector labor force wants to be, uh, I mean, is in a union, but 60% want to be in a union, well, what explains that? That's only management opposition, management animus. It's, you know, in the general public and among working people, there is a substantial amount of sympathy for unions. But what has happened is that the legal environment and the just cultural environment has shifted in such a way that that desire is just thwarted. And what we see in these recent elections is some hope that maybe that juggernaut of corporate power against unions can actually be defeated can actually be turned aside. Uh, Amazon was not playing around when they tried to defeat this union organizing drive, and they lost. Well, hey, that's people are paying attention to that. I think that will increase public appreciation uh, for unions. Now, you, you mentioned the question of adjuncts and, and part-time employment on campuses. It's a, it's a big problem. Um, I was just in a meeting here at my union. Uh, we, we represent the faculty and professional staff in the State University of New York. A, a colleague was just standing up at a meeting of, uh, of academics here, just here in Albany, 15 minutes before the call started, our, uh, this call. And she was saying that she teaches at Empire State College, and 75% of the faculty are contingent, or they're, they're adjuncts. 
75 percent in a in a labor college. So it's a it's a serious problem, and it's a problem organizing the part time employers, and the, because they're not around, they're going to their next gig or they're going to their next place and they don't have an office they're working out of their cars in the parking lot preparing their classes how do you find them they don't have offices they don't have mailboxes um the university administration isn't going to tell the union where they are or what their phone numbers are or what their email addresses are so that it's a very big problem when you have contingent and part-time employment uh, to get that workforce mobilized. Our union and other unions are making very severe and strong efforts to do that, and we are making inroads, but it's, it's, it's a tough problem, yes. Michael, I just wanted to ask you a bit more about um, the, the time, effort, and money that Amazon put into uh, trying to defeat the union in this recent election at the Staten Island Warehouse uh, tell us about some of the tactics that are used and uh, the current effort now by Amazon to challenge the vote through the uh, NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board. Right. Uh, tell us a, a well, bit of kind of the stir- current state of things as well as what uh, Amazon did to block the vote. Well, well, the kind of thing that Amazon would do is to have a mandatory meetings where the workforce was required to come into uh, a hall or come into a meeting room and there to sit and listen to a presentation about how terrible the union is. And Amazon would have their managers or consultants come in who were supposed experts and people who were here to help the workers understand what was really at stake because the workers didn't have enough experience with these questions. But here's somebody from this law firm and he's a professor or he's really got all these credentials and uh, he's here to tell you, or she's here to tell you, or they're here to tell you, union's a bad idea. And they're mandatory meetings. You have to be there. You have to sit there. You have to listen to this. And what uh, the organizing campaign did in Staten Island was they got people to speak up in those meetings. Yeah, we have to be here, but we don't have to agree with this. We can stand up in this meeting and say, this is baloney. And you're just being paid to come in here to tell us this because management wants to crush this union. We're not going to listen to what you have to say because we know it isn't true. One of the things that is the great uh, kind of selling point that management always brings into these things is, oh, the union's a third party. Mm-hmm. The union, we we want to have direct contact with you. You're the workers here. We respect you. You come to us if you have a problem. We don't need any third-party union coming in here. Well, what Amazon workers were able to do in Staten Island was to say, what, what third party? We're the workers. We're the union. We're here. This is mm-hmm. us. And that kind of took the, the legs right under that argument. But uh, those kinds of things are the kinds of things that Amazon would do. They also fire people, to, like Chris Smalls uh, was, was fired uh, when he tried to organize, and he did organize a walkout over protective uh, equipment at the beginning of uh, COVID. Um, he got workers to walk out and say, well, we can't work, it's unsafe. Now... The result was he was fired. Now, you can go to the National Labor Relations Board and say it's illegal to fire a worker for trying to organize a union, which it is. But the only thing that the company will have to do at the end of that whole long legal process is to allow the worker to have his job back. There's no punishment. There's no penalty. There's no fine. Nothing. Mm. And so uh, the company has all kinds of... uh, activities that it can undertake to undermine union activity and threaten workers and bring in these uh, consultants to have these um, uh, mandatory meetings. Now, what the uh, Amazon is now saying is, uh, and as far as I know, they haven't actually acted on it yet, but they're threatening to act. The NLRB came back with a ruling uh, before the this recent election, that the company had engaged in unfair labor practices 
in and there was adjudicating an early dispute that uh, the workers brought to the NLRB National Labor Relations Board, which supervises elections in the private sector. So public sector workers are a whole separate arena. But Amazon is a private company, so the National Labor Relations Board is involved. So the uh, Amazon had undertaken unfair practices according to the law, and the National Labor Relations Board came back with a ruling that back two years ago, yes, it's true, they did an unfair labor practice. And what now Amazon is claiming is the fact that the NLRB issued that ruling before this election was uh, not neutral. That was something that was done in order to protect the union and to disadvantage management, and it was uh, therefore an illegitimate uh, interference by the National Labor Relations Board in the election process. That's what they want to claim. It's just, you know, it's just another spurious baloney claim, but, you know, that's what I think they may try to do. So I don't know if that helps understand what uh, what the, the situation is, but uh, that's my understanding. Richard, did you have a follow-on question about uh, Amazon or the labor movement? Yeah, actually, I wanted to go back to sort of basic definitions for a second here, because Michael is so good at explaining these things. Could you, Michael, once again, explain what unions are, uh, what they do, and how they're a counterbalance to the power of the corporation and the, the role they play in moving workers from the underdog status toward being equal players uh, with management? Well, Richard, I think that your question has the answer right in it. Uh, how do you counterbalance the power of management when you're a worker approaching your your boss or your supervisor? If you're just an individual worker and you go to your boss because you think you're being unfairly treated or you're not getting paid enough or you have uh, mandatory overtime or you have an, un- an irregular work schedule and you want to have it regular so that you can plan child care. And the boss says, well, you know, no, I don't care. You, that's your problem. My problem is you have to go back to work. If you don't like it here, get lost. Well, if you're just an individual worker and you're dealing with Amazon or you're dealing with General Motors or you're dealing with Microsoft, it's kind of hard to say, no, I don't want to take a hike. You take a hike. I want this resolved. What a union does is it allows workers to gather themselves into a collective power base so that when a worker goes to the manager... He doesn't go by himself. He's got representation. The steward goes. She goes and says, hey, you know, this worker over here, you treated that worker in a bum way, and that has to stop because we have a contract over here that says you can't do that because we negotiated that contract in collective bargaining, and the company agreed because we got them to agree that you can't Uh, have an arbitrary work schedule that doesn't give people two weeks' notice of uh, a change in their schedule. And here you are, you posted this new schedule, and you can't do it because look at the contract. Article 17, Section 3 says you can't do it. And then that's the end of the story because the workers have enough power collectively to impose conditions. That's called the Terms and Conditions of Employment that require the management to respect to respect the rights and the uh, conditions of work for the workforce and for all the workers. And that is what unions do. Unions are the organizational form that workers exercise power at the workplace. That's, you know, in a short way, uh, which was, you know, right in your question, what unions do. Ruth Ann, you had something here. Yes, I, <clears throat> I thought you might want to uh, talk a little bit, Michael, about the power of the press and the way that a union can uh, access that 
where an individual might get a sob story into the local paper but cannot use the press? Well, you know, labor in the press is a, is a very important question. And here we're talking about corporate media and we're talking about uh, editors and editorial boards and publishers. You know, you, you have a friendly uh, reporter who wants to write a story about uh, some grievance or some uh, manager that's uh, out of line. And you go and you talk to this reporter well, is the editor going to agree that the reporter should take her time and write that article? And if the editor says yes, well, does the managing editor going to agree when that article appears and the corporate headquarters calls the newspaper and said, what are you guys doing? Why are you giving voice to this problem? Uh, that's just unfair. You didn't call me. and our, you know, our corporate office has something to say about this. And when you write a story, you want to have our voice in that, in that story. And now you get into a whole thing again about what is the general culture and the climate of society. So, as an example, in the 1940s, 1950s, almost every major newspaper in the country had a labor reporter. That was that was a beat. You know, you have a police reporter, you have a reporter that deals with uh, with environmental questions, you have a reporter that deals with education, you have a reporter that deals with labor. And that reporter writes stories, and every day there's a story about what's going on in a strike over here or in a contract negotiation over there. And the question of labor and work was in the news because that contributed to the culture and it reflected the culture of power that workers had in the society. And as unions and labor receded in their authority and power in society, there weren't any more labor reporters. Steve Greenhouse in the uh, at the New York Times, one of the last labor reporters, whose beat really was just labor. Noam Scheiber in the Times now writes occasional stories about labor, but does a number of other things. So, getting the press to pay attention is is a major. Uh, component of what a union and what workers need to do. And here I think it's a very important thing to notice that the Amazon victory was big news all over the country, as it should be. And I think that that, again, is a reflection, not just of the newspapers deciding, oh, this is a good idea, let's look at this, but that it's, again, something that's happening that can't any longer just be plugged up. And so I think that uh, increasingly we're going to see these stories and increasingly that's going to help workers um, re- repeat and replicate these, uh, these victories in other places. Michael, I, I did want to ask you about uh, strategies and um a long vision for for labor. It's clear that labor does need some some new ideas and new thinking. And one of the criticisms of labor over these many years is that uh, they are engaged in business unionism, uh, solely focused on wages and benefits at specific workplaces, rather than battling it out on societal issues, on public policy issues, making common cause with the wider public. With, with communities and, and looking inward instead of outward for support among people across the country. Um, has, has labor, you think, moved to a, a, a more expansive idea of what uh, labor and unions mean? And how important is that uh, for the future of labor in this country? The opening of the labor movement or workers' and union leaders and activists to the broader community is something that is actually going on, particularly among uh, service workers, teachers, uh, hospital workers, nurses. uh, These are people who, in their daily work, are serving the public. And when they, uh, you know, they're, like we say as teachers, teaching conditions are learning conditions. And the nurses will say staffing levels are not just 
for the nurses and their uh, ability to uh, work with a with a free mind. But that's that's patient care. If you've got a nurse that's got thirty different ICU beds that they have to deal with, it's crazy, and it's crazy for the public. So the nurses and teachers and other uh, workers are getting the idea that uh, and, and implementing those ideas of having real connections with the community. And so the Chicago Teachers Union, for example, was very successful in Los Angeles, the uh, United Teachers of Los Angeles, UTLA, another AFT uh, local, very successful in linking its demands and its needs as teachers to what the community needed for their schools and for their children, and to have the schools be centers for community involvement and community engagement. Um, so all of those kinds of connections uh, are uh, being mobilized in some way or other in some unions. Now, if you're not in a service industry, if you're, you know, an auto worker, or if you're working in, a, you know, in a coal mine or some other place, it's more difficult to make those kinds of immediate community connections. Although, you know, there's again a possibilities of de of having the union take up social questions about health care, social questions about corporate gobbling up of uh, hospitals, for example, uh, community hospitals, and then closing them down. Well, that's a, uh, a question that uh, unions can take up f for the structure of uh, health care, not just health care unions, but any union. And that, again, is something that is happening in different places around the country. And in general, the idea that what is good for workers in a particular industry or a particular plant spreads out into the larger community and develops benefits and develops, again, a general culture of doing things that are good for workers and challenging corporate power to get those things done. If you can do that on the workplace floor, you can do that in the community about all kinds of issues. So uh, the labor movement, I think, is beginning to understand that, and it's uh, trying to implement it in different places, but a lot more work needs to be done along those lines. Well, Michael, we're almost out of time. Uh, any last uh, quick words you want to leave our listeners with about the importance of this uh, election victory at the Amazon warehouse in Staten Island? Yeah, and, and Scott, I wanted to insert there uh, maybe Michael's prediction about how these victories, which have grabbed so much attention in the news, are, are they really part of a, a, a new traje trajectory for labor that uh, will bring us back to the kind of power that, that labor had during the uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s? What are your thoughts on that? Michael, keep in mind, well, you only got a couple minutes left. <laughs> well, let's keep in mind that I don't really know. <laughs> so we can get rid of this in two minutes because who knows where where this leads. You know, you never know at any given moment what uh, will be a flash in the pan or what will really be consolidated into a new reality. Uh we can be hopeful. We can take this as a moment to really have these discussions and then to structure organizing campaigns among gig workers, among baristas, among Uber drivers, among uh, workers who have not had the opportunity to organize unions and now see that opportunity and exercise that opportunity. That's very important. And if we can do that in the next uh, two years, three years, five years as that unfolds, we can help also to change the general climate in the country to address corporate power, again, not just at the workplace, but in the social structures as a whole, uh, having to do with, you know, the Build Back Better campaign, for example, or corporate power, or it's the tax structure, or uh, the uh, voting rights, where what's behind these voting rights changes may be driven in an immediate sense by uh, concerns about uh, black voters and trying to block the old racist Jim Crow block black voters. 
But what that's also about is let's not have Medicaid expansion. Let's not have um, pub, uh, public schools. Let's have private schools. All the corporate agenda. Let's not have taxes. Let's not have regulation. Let's not worry about climate change. That is a whole agenda uh, that is pushing forward and a labor agenda that asserts its power at the workplace with a public support that understands that what's really at stake is challenging corporate power in the society, that can lead to a real political transformation in the country. And that gets us back to, well, what's the relationship of the labor movement to the larger society? And that's, well, what's the relationship of the class divisions at work and the power of workers at work mobilized into the larger community? And there we'll have to see what people are willing to do, what people's understandings are, and how we'll exercise this understanding and develop the understanding to be able to make the most of this opportunity. Now, whether that'll happen, whether we can do it this time or it'll all recede back, who knows? But we do know that that's the task that's in front of us and that this victory at Amazon and up in Massachusetts with the workers at MIT and at Fordham University here in New York uh, last week, also the graduate students who organized the union. I mean, it's happening. And there's, you know, uh, Starbucks, 10 new uh, Starbucks facilities organized unions in the last 10 days. Something is going on, and whether we can take that and make it into something much broader, bigger, and profound, that remains to be seen. All right. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. And again, double thanks for uh, being on the road and taking this call. Um, and we'll, we'll certainly call upon you again to talk about these um, and related topics. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to be with you, and thanks to the whole panel and... Um Let's uh, go get this work done. Thanks. Michael Zweig is Professor Emeritus and former Director of the Center for the Study of Working Class Life at the State University of New York at Stony Brook and the author of many books. And we're very happy you could join us today. Thanks for joining us on today's uh, uh, Resistance Roundtable. Uh, we'll be back again the second Saturday of uh, next month, so we hope you will stay tuned. We've got a lot more coming up here on WPKN in Bridgeport. Stay with us and we'll be back next month.